Welcome to the Demystifying Diversity podcast, where each week we explore topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Daryl Lyons. In this episode, we explore the spectrum of human sexuality and gender identity, and we speak about the ways in which the LGBTQIA community is still striving for recognition and inclusion. Safety is very, um, so like ephemeral, it's really hard to pin down. And what I tell people in my trans competency trainings is like, safety can never be guaranteed. As much as we try, as much as we like say, this is a safe space, like, you can't, you can't really say that to people, you can't promise that because you don't know what's going to hurt people, you don't know what's going on, Um, you can only try your best. So um, something that I talk about in my trans competency trainings is like, the difference between a safe space and a safer space, like this is safer than, you know, us being out in a different area, but like, I can't guarantee that everybody will walk out of here, like, unscathed. In the mid to late 1960s in America, there was no such thing as being out and proud. Drag queens, gay men, lesbians, transgender people, and those who today would categorize themselves as queer were regularly and systematically persecuted. They were persecuted by lay people and by authorities. Sexual activity between same-sex individuals and certain forms of gender bending were illegal. This meant that if and when gay and trans-identifying people wanted to emerge from their closets, they had to do so at tremendous risk to themselves. And by criminalizing non-heterosexual sexual behavior and non-cisgender expression, local, state, and government authorities forced LGBTQIA life underground. And they also set up a set of circumstances where the only real option for these quote-unquote criminals to achieve visibility and community was to associate with actual criminals. Enter the mafia. In the 1960s in New York City, The mob operated unlicensed and therefore illegal bars and clubs where members of the LGBTQIA community could go to safely express their romantic interests and gender identities. Not that it was safe. In addition to being surrounded by an actual criminal contingent, people who knew how to make a body disappear or who with the right provocation could condemn a person to swimming with the fishes, LGBTQIA patrons dealt with the very real threat of arrests. Police regularly raided clubs and rousted anyone engaging in same-sex sexual activity, such as horror of horrors, kissing or holding hands. They also arrested anyone they viewed as gender nonconforming. Female officers would even take suspected cross-dressing patrons into the bathroom to check their sex organs. If you were in a dress and had a penis, you were destined for the paddy wagon. The mob did its best to keep raids to a minimum by paying off corrupt police officers to look the other way while they profited at their gay and trans customers' expense. But arrests were a regular part of the urban LGBTQIA nightlife. And although these underground venues provided an essential function within the LGBTQIA community, they also perpetrated the conflation of certain forms of sex and gender expression with criminality and sinfulness. There's a whole thing about the LGBTQ community, which which still goes on. It was worse 20 or 30 years ago, but it's still going on today, where a lot of people just have this idea that you're sinners. Early on the morning of June 28, 1969, 
in the Greenwich Village neighborhood of Manhattan. Police officers raided the Stonewall Inn. They roughed up patrons, harassed bar employees, and arrested 13 people. Just another day in the life of an unscrupulous and exploitative system. Only the Stonewall patrons and a group of gathered neighborhood residents had had enough of being hassled by those whose job it ought to have been to serve and protect them. When an officer hit a lesbian over the head as he forced her into a paddy wagon, the mob was incited to take action. Over the next five days, thousands of New Yorkers took to the streets in protest. There were fires, voices screaming, marching, and a community made visible by the organized collective action. Today, the events at Stonewall and its immediate aftermath are widely cited as the beginning of the gay liberation movement. It wasn't that people hadn't taken a stand for LGBTQIA rights before, but Stonewall drew a line of demarcation, after which it became clear there would be no more forcing LGBTQIA life back in the closet. Gay and trans rights mattered too. Coming out the first time was a matter of coming out pre-Stonewall, and in an era when my girlfriend and I just simply thought we had invented it and we didn't have a name for it, and then as as the relationship was unfolding and various social pressures were starting to be there for us, like parents expecting us to date and marry and boys expecting us to date, um, in that space, it at that point, it, the second wave of feminism was getting enough literature out to the place where I lived that I began to find, I actually found um, a copy of Robin Morgan's Sisterhood is Powerful, and from an article in there, and I don't remember which one, but I gained the word lesbian, and I went to my girlfriend and said, look, there's a name for us. Reverend Dr. Nadine Rosechild Sullivan is an ordained interfaith minister and an instructor of sociology, gender, and sexuality and women's studies. When she came out the first time prior to Stonewall, neither she nor the woman she was in love with had the social or familial support structures to build a life around a same-sex partnership. Ultimately, I just had to leave her. She was determined to continue to date boys and to pick one to marry. And I felt like she was even more lesbian than I was and less interested in boys than I was. But she was not about to break her parents' heart and couldn't resist that social pressure. So I lost her to that. Nadine married a man. They had children and spent more than 20 years together before ultimately divorcing, at which point she came out as lesbian for the second time. Likewise, Angela Gardner married someone from whom she kept her sexual orientation, and in her case, gender identity, a secret. Throughout this episode, I will refer to Angela by her and she pronouns, because she sat for this interview with me, dressed as a woman, and she agreed to speak on the record as a woman. However, Angela describes herself as follows. I'm two people, so I'm I'm a dude and I'm a chick. This was something Angela is now very open about with her boyfriend, but she was never able to express her gender identity to her ex-wife. It's a bitter irony considering that Angela's wife was an advocate for women's rights. She was active in uh, uh, women's rights stuff, so she would go away for meetings on the weekends, and then I would indulge my women's rights to slip into some stuff that I had hidden in a basement in a suitcase Nadine and Angela grappled with sexuality and gender identity issues prior to the increased LGBTQIA visibility and rights of subsequent generations. I kind of take it for granted that I think my day-to-day involves a lot of like gay entertainment and gay characters and gay people. 
That's Rob O'Neill, an improv comedian, writer, and movie connoisseur. Rob is in his mid-30s. I'm grateful to be the age I am because I did grow up in a time when in the 70s and 80s, especially during the AIDS crisis, the generation before me fought and died so that things could be easier for me. And that's not lost on me. Rob works for a company that serves a primarily gay male clientele. I think men in rural areas and men in the Midwest and any place that wasn't like a big metropolitan city, um, I think men were concerned that their even that their mailman might see um, what kind of material they were getting and then retaliate or pick on them for some reason because they disapproved of their lifestyle. That was that's a that was a genuine concern of many people. Due to the tireless efforts of LGBTQIA activists. America has come a long way in terms of legislation and protection. Angela began to go public about her involvement in the trans community in the late 1980s. Back then, the only way you had to you know, get your word out about your existence was an ad in a paper. Like you could put it in a gay newspaper because people assumed there was something gay about it. <laughs> and... And you could go on television shows or, or whatever and, you know, try to get your word out. But the television shows were mostly interested in having some kind of conflict, you know. So we went on, I don't know if you remember Morton Downey Jr. He was a guy that, that, that had a show. It was in the evening. And it was all about confrontation. It was like the audience was like... And he would let, like let you talk, but then he'd bring somebody in to attack you, and you know. So, so we, you know, we did a lot of stuff. But Donnie was probably the best. And Sally Jesse Raphael and, and those things. But you know, did a show in Canada. So, you know, that was a lot of outreach back then. That was necessary because you didn't have the internet or any way to spread the word. Nowadays, there's a lot more LGBTQIA representation. And it is more, I mean, it definitely got more ubiquitous. Gay characters became more popular in more, in like everything, I think, you know, and every facet of entertainment. Um, And not just like the stereotypes, like the gay best friend or whatever. A year after Stonewall, on June 28th, 1970, the first gay pride marches took place in three major U.S. cities, New York, Los Angeles, and San Francisco but rights and representation have been difficult to come by. People still face a lot of risks for expressing their sexual orientation and or gender identity. And sadly, the discrimination that many experience comes from those who ought to be allies. There are people in the transgender community who look down on the cross-dressers because human beings always love to be able to have somebody they can point to and say, I'm better than them. In some cases, prejudice comes from every angle. Here is Vara Cooper, a professional coach, storyteller, and narrative consultant. I'm not gay enough to be for, for the gay people to accept me. I'm not straight enough for the straight people. And bisexuality, like biphobia, bi erasure, bi, you know, it's like, oh, pick a side, or oh, that means you're promiscuous, whatever it is, whatever the stigma is, it's like queer sort of pushes all of it. It's like, yeah. I'm amorphous. Attitudes of intolerance, painful as they are, don't even compare to the physical brutality that many have endured. Hate crimes against LGBTQIA people have only risen as we've gotten rights. 
the 2016 shooting at an Orlando nightclub, the 1998 murder of Matthew Shepard, the gruesome mutilation of Ali Steinfeld in 2017, the 2014 killing of Brittany Cosby and Crystal Jackson by Brittany's father, for whom the sin of murder apparently paled in comparison to the, insert air quotes here, sin of lesbianism, violence against members of the LGBTQIA community committed by insiders and outsiders alike still occurs with staggering frequency. Here's what Nadine had to say after pointing to the upsurge of hate crimes. But the culture, the climate of the times has shifted. Mm -hmm. And most people are like, get over it already. Like, I don't care. If that person wants to wear a dress and wants me to call them she, okay. Yeah. I don't care. Let them live their life. Let me live mine. Like, people, people want to be there. People want our equality, like everyone's equality, to finally get there. There are a lot of people who want equality and a lot of people who espouse tolerance. Even so, there remains a great deal of ignorance. Here's Timory Schmidt, sexuality educator. Sex education, especially in America, is abysmal. You don't know how much we don't know. Nadine again. I have three slides that I use in classes. And as a, socio- as a social scientist, so these three slides are sex, gender identity, and sexual affectional orientation. And I break them apart, and each of them is a continuum. So in the first slide, talking about the sex of the body, we expect a child to be XX or XY in its chromosomes. We expect the XX ones to be female and the XY ones to be male. And we expect their opposite sexes and never the twain meets. And so the center of the continuum on, in the slide is the intersex people who are one in 1,500 births on average, right? Um, that's a, it makes a lot of human beings. When you take the millions of people in the United States even, one in 1,500 ends up being a, you know, a large, not it's a small population, but it's a significant population. There's just this, this space of variance. So when we move from the sex of the body, then there's the gender identity. And gender identity, we expect people to identify along with the sex of their body. We expect them to identify as feminine or masculine. I never identified with the femininity stuff. I mean, I do it at some level. I, I have long hair. I wear earrings. I, I wear frilly shirts, but I also like men's frock coats. Just I just sort of like theatrical clothing. Um, but it is that space of masculinity and femininity. There's this whole other space. There's all sorts of ways people identify as both or neither or androgynous. Yeah. Or, you know, like me, just human. And so whatever that space is, that's our gender identity. And then we move to sexual affectional orientation. So in a culture that only sees male and female, and males have to be masculine and females have to be feminine, then when you sleep with a same-sex partner, it's this big deal, right? But so on a continuum, Kinsey and a guy named Klein um, have done continuums where one end is straight, totally straight, never had a same-sex attraction or feeling. The other end is same-sex oriented, never had a had a heterosexual feeling or attraction. But most people are in the middle somewhere. Transphobia and homophobia are deeply embedded in American culture. They are reflected in our language and reinforced by our rhetoric. 
the internalization of oppression hurts everybody. It hurts the oppressor and it hurts the oppressed. If the he's and she's of the world don't make space for the z's and they's, we will continue to write certain people out of the script of existence. This isn't necessarily intentional. But the sin of omission is one of the greatest sins there is. A cis person, someone who sees themselves as either squarely on the male or female side of the gender spectrum, might have difficulty comprehending why someone wouldn't want to be referred to as he or she, unless and until they understand that there are gender identities that exist outside the cultural codification of male and female. This has always been and will always be the case. Trans people or like gender diverse people have always existed. Um, we didn't always have this binary language. Um, binaries were have been reinforced and introduced into societies because it's easy it's easier to control, it's easier to oppress people if they all kind of fall into one or two categories. And People keep saying like, oh, all of this is so new. You know, trans people are just coming out of, you know, we're not coming out of our caves after years and years of hibernation. It's just, we've always been here. And it's only because we have all kind of come together that people realize that there's a lot of strength in our community. And there, and we are now demanding visibility and we are demanding respect. Um, so kind of just like debunking that myth that trans people didn't exist years and years ago. And even like across the world, there are so many different cultures that do not have um, like binary genders. They have like even indigenous people, they have two spirit uh, as a gender identity. And then like all across the world, there's so many different terms for um, trans people. And, and yeah, just wish people were a little bit more, open-minded to the fact that like we've always been here and we'll always be here whether they like it or not (laughs) so they might as well like might as well learn about each other learning enables all of us to better understand the complexity of gender identity you're about to hear an individual who agreed to be interviewed but requested to remain unidentified because of the social pressure to conform This person is the parent of a trans child who sat down with me to speak about how their child's example enabled them to discover things about themselves they always knew, but never had a way to articulate. Did you feel like you then ended up sometimes translating to your husband because of that? Because you do understand? I translate to a lot of people. I probably translated to him in the beginning. Mm. And I, you know, now he gets it. And I translated to a lot of people because, yeah, it was easy for me to... I'm, you know, in so many ways, my brain works in non-normal, but in so many ways, what I do, and so, yeah, it was very easy for me, like, okay, yeah, that makes sense, okay, then explain it, yeah. Yeah. Well, and then in explaining it, at what point did you realize you were also somewhat explaining yourself? I'm not sure, actually. (laughs) It was when someone asked me for pronouns, and I'm like, I actually don't want to do that. Yeah, I really, yeah, like, if I'm going to go around, I'm going to ask you all to give them, I'm probably not going to give them. Yeah. Yeah, It was just a really weird, I don't want to declare myself someplace. The internalization of rigid and narrow gender roles makes it seem to many as if there are certain inherent absolutes about gender. Things like real men don't cry or a woman's place is in the home. Who says? 
What if a woman wants to run a Fortune 500 company, or a man feels the impulse to shed tears of gratitude or weep over the loss of a loved one? Thinking about gender as a social construct enables us to begin making more empowered and authentic choices, as opposed to allowing our biases to dictate our behaviors. We could be the healing When you're feeling all alone We can be the reason To find the strength to carry on In a world that's so divided We shall overcome We can be the healing We can be the flower in the gun We can be the healing We can be the flower in the gun As a sociologist, I feel like gender roles are very, very much social constructions. I think that biologically, obviously, there are some differences, but I think that we far exaggerate them in our culture. I think most of us, on some level, are performing gender in an area of our lives that might not work that well for us. And I think that, you know, just being able to have that space of like, oh, Mm -hmm. yeah, I identify as female, but I don't like wearing dresses. You mean I don't have to ever? Right. Or yeah, I identify as male and I'm a sensitive person and it's okay to be both those things. Like totally the binary and toxic masculinity hurts everybody. It hurts men who perpetuate it uh, out of fear and projection and insecurity. It hurts women. Uh, It hurts all non-binary and gender fluid. It it hurts everybody because it puts everybody into a certain box and makes everybody think that they have to be this way or else they are not a man or else they are not a woman. There's not one way to be any gender. There's not one way to perform any gender. So if we just kind of get rid of that, then everybody will feel more liberated. That was Oliver DeLuce, who you heard earlier in this episode. Oliver is a queer, non-binary, trans-competency educator with personal and professional experience dealing with the painful ramifications of intolerance. And much of this intolerance stems from societal and personal projections and misconceptions. Here's Tim Marie again. One of the first jobs of anybody who works in sexuality, whether as a a counselor or an educator, is to acknowledge their own like backpack full of stuff and that is a skill that i wish i had to, i could teach everybody when i do sexuality um but it's especially important if they're going to go be a teacher because if you let me use i phrases if i don't know what's in the bag that i'm carrying around with me i'm going to be unaware of how i'm like you know swinging it around and like hitting people with it we all have backpacks full of stuff it's part of the experience of being human The problem is never the backpack or even what's inside. It's the failure to acknowledge what we're carrying or how swinging it around can cause serious damage. It is incumbent upon all of us to create greater safety so that people can share without shame and without self-loathing. All people, wherever they may fall on any spectrum. You know, when you're seriously in the closet and you can't tell anybody and you don't know anybody else that, that does it, then you can get like really guilty and, you know, just messed up. So, you know, and oftentimes they talk about, you know, they talk about now, well, trans people have uh, all of these problems and it could all be fixed if we just fixed their gender problem, you know, just 
just like get them cured of that. And it's like, no, the reason they have problems is that they have had all of this guilt, secrecy, hiding, you know. And I mean, when you're somebody that, that's really honest and open and want to be that way, but you have this thing and you've got to hold it like this and not ever talk about it, that gives you mental problems. So, you know, and, and in the case of trans women who want to transition and become women, they have found that, you know, giving them this, the, the gender uh, surgery clears up a lot of, of problems that they've been experiencing. While we may think differently, we all experience the same spectrum of human emotions. Joy, excitement, surprise, sadness, anger, disgust, fear, contempt, guilt, shame, and too many others to enumerate. If we could acknowledge these emotions in ourselves and in each other, we could stop the dehumanization that leads to a false sense of separation. We have to own that that's our feelings are driving our rationalizations. Mm, that requires such a level of vulnerability, Ooh, though. Yeah, it does. Yeah. <laughs> For me, the answer is almost unequivocally vulnerability. Yes. It's almost always the answer. It's like, own what you don't know. Mm-hmm. Own your limits. Be true. Absolutely. Be transparent. When we're able to share with the vulnerability, we can make these little incremental differences. We can't. That's how we end up with a generation like like the millennials who, you know, gender is canceled. You know, they just don't care about the same things while also caring about the same thing. Here's a short message from our episode sponsors, without whose support the Demystifying Diversity podcast wouldn't be possible. There are some things we don't want to think about, like our own mortality. But it's important now more than ever, especially if we have people who we love and who rely on us. We need to make sure that those people are taken care of. If you've listened to previous Demystifying Diversity podcast episodes, you've heard me rave about Lavin and Associates. In addition to their free financial needs analysis, owners John and Patty Lavin offer low-cost term life insurance. With their guidance and support, I made a solid, easy, and actionable financial plan, which included my life insurance needs. Please contact them, especially now. It's the most loving thing you can do for yourself and for those you care about. To receive a free quote on low-cost term life insurance or a free financial needs analysis, or both, call John at 610-453-2331 or email johnlavin at me.com. That's J-O-N-L-A-V-I-N at me.com. And as long as we're on the subject of doing things for yourself and your loved ones, I really want to tell you about next-level trainings. Whatever your struggles, finances, career, relationships, next-level trainings will vastly and quickly improve the quality of your life. The company uses experiential emotional intelligence exercises to help you see yourself as you are shift your perspective, and start forming sustainable habits that will transform your life, and by extension, your community and the world. 
In a supportive environment, you'll come to see yourself and others through a more open, powerful, and freeing lens. I did the trainings and I sent my mom, my sister, a couple of my aunts, and so many friends. I basically want everyone to go because I can say from my own firsthand experience and from what I've witnessed in my loved ones that the trainings increase people's capacity for love, connection, and vulnerability. The trainings empower us to go for what we want in life and give us the tools to achieve our dreams. If we don't let go of what's holding us back and create the lives we want now, when will we do it? I can't recommend next level trainings enough. And the company is offering Demystifying Diversity podcast listeners $50 off on Shift, their introductory virtual training. To add even more value to their offer, if you register for and attend the Shift online training now, you'll receive a free voucher to their in-person discovery training valued at $495. The voucher can be used when pandemic gathering restrictions lift. So go to nextleveltrainings.com slash diversity. That's nextleveltrainings with an S dot com slash diversity and enter the promo code diversity. You'll be glad you did. When looking for examples of people who have paved the way with vulnerability, we don't have to look any further than the LGBTQIA community. After all, what's braver than coming out in a heteronormative and transphobic culture? Coming out to oneself? Well, funny story. I, um, I remember I found out what gay was when, um, I was in the third grade. I feel like there was one day when all of the sudden, the coolest thing in the world, the funniest thing you could do was call someone gay. Um, and it happened in the, well, like one day in the third grade where I was like, and I did not know what that word meant. And there was this kid, James Purdy, um, who I asked, I was like, I heard people were saying, you know, you're gay, that's gay, this is gay, 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 gay. And I was like, what does gay mean? And I think in like a very nice way, he explained like, oh, it's when I think he I think it was gendered. I think he said it's when a guy likes another guy. I think it was uh, unintentionally sexist and he just left every other gender out. But um, I was like, oh, and I knew and I was like, oh, shit, that's me. And coming out to others. It's interesting to be a queer and trans person because I had to come out twice. I was in the closet um, all of high school, like all of growing up. I always knew that I was um, queer and I didn't have the language for gender um, when I was in high school. I came out to my mom my freshman year of college. Came she out as queer? Came out as, as queer. Okay. Came out as queer to my mom. She told me not to tell anybody. She told me not to tell my dad. She told me not to tell my family. Um, she was like, that's all good and fine, but like, don't bring it up anywhere. Because my mom had told me that my dad and the rest of my family would not be accepting. Mm -hmm. So I held the secret in for another year from my dad until I called him one day and I was crying because I was just like, I was so stressed out that he didn't know this big thing about me. And I called him and I said, I, I have to tell you, I'm, I'm queer, I'm gay. And um, my dad was crying and he goes, I always figured you were bisexual. Like, you're my favorite person. 
I don't care. Like, I'm so proud of you. Like, thank you for telling me. And I was so mad at my mom because I was like, I can't believe she convinced me that my dad wouldn't be accepting. When I came out as trans, it was very different. Um, That was my junior year of college. I texted both my parents. They had divorced. So I texted them both kind of the same message. I love you very much. Like, I appreciate all the support you've given me. Just letting you know, I'm trying to use this name now. So I know it will be hard and weird. But if you can just try, like, I'd really appreciate it. My dad texts me back. Oh, my gosh. Is Ollie okay? I love you. Like, I love that. You know, he was just so positive. And I got a text back from my mom that said, no. She sent another text. What does that mean? I had no answers. And she was demanding them. And since I was screening her calls that night, I woke up the next morning and my phone was shut off. I sent an email to my mom and I was like, this is really upsetting. Like, this is not fair. Um, just because you're demanding something from me doesn't mean you get to take that away, to mm. take something that's very important away. Um, and then she told me that she was going to stop supporting me, stop helping me with school, um, all of these things. And I basically had to come out in like an essay via email. Like I've been going, I've been using they, them for almost a year now. Uh, my friends all know, my friends love me. Trying to convince her like, I have a solid support system, despite whatever you may think. Um, And I said, like, I don't abuse drugs. I don't abuse alcohol. I have a great time in school. I'm very active in theater. Like, doing anything to convince her, like, I'm not a bad person and there's nothing wrong with me because of these changes that I'm kind of coming to terms with. And we haven't spoken since. Gay and transphobias have an eviscerating impact. Oliver's example just goes to show how even if the culture around sexual orientation seems to have shifted, there's still an even longer way to go when it comes to gender identity. Here's Vara Cooper again. Dating dating trans people um, eliminates that pain and that that the oppression um, and the programming and the, the socialization. It becomes... I've, I've watched trans people that I've had very strong feelings about really sh- struggle and suffer with the male privilege that they were born with or the male privilege they were actually actively striving for. Um, it's We have a long way to go for all genders before, yeah, I mean, the, the program, all, all the patriarchy is it's hurting everybody. Even when we're con- we're cognizant of it, and we're actively pursuing the gender and sexual identities that we want and that we idealize, that we glamorize, whatever it is that we're doing and striving for, like it's still we're still gonna have to pass through like all these walls of patriarchy, external and internal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Vara has hope. Not necessarily in society at large, but in the love and connection of our more intimate relationships and in the connectedness of family and friends. Even the most hateful human beings, I think, still can be heard or can still hear somebody close to them. 
when an issue becomes personal, our opinions tend to shift. While in many cases this may be true, it certainly wasn't the case with Ali Steinfeld, Brittany Cosby, or Oliver DeLuce. Talk about conditional love. And wow, yeah. Yeah, she had said in an email to me, I thought my love for you was unconditional, but I realized that I was wrong. And I was like, whoa, I totally thought you would be there for me. Um, But because she was so concerned with what people thought, she was so afraid of what she wasn't understanding. Um, She would rather make me feel like this instead of... If your kid is coming out to you, you need to be a thousand percent supportive or else, you know, just suicide rates in the transgender community, especially in transgender youth, homeless, homelessness, you know, uh, drug addiction and drug abuse. um, All of these things run so rampant because there's so much parental neglect. And I was in such a vulnerable place in my life and to you know, hope that she would have open arms and only just shut the door on me, just like totally changed the way that I had perceived my whole childhood. It's like, wow, this whole time you wanted me to be a certain person. And now that I've fully told you that I'm not that person, you want nothing to do with me. Um, And I think that that's why I have really wanted to bring more activism and more support because I never want people to be in that situation. And, and I help a lot of parents. A lot of the times in my competency trainings, people come up to me after and they're like, okay, so I have a transgender kid. And you know, they have all these questions and they're like, I want to be the best mom I can be. I want to be the best dad I can be. And I'm like, you're already so far ahead. Just that intention and that willingness to learn is more than a lot of other people can say um and it feels really good to be kind of like uh, a second hand like support to this child I've never met like just because I want anybody to have that because I know what it's like to not when they talk to the parents friends co-workers and family members of trans individuals Oliver stresses that receptivity is essential Even the fear of disapproval keeps many people from being open with their loved ones. And this secrecy and shame comes with a host of consequences. Common thing, before all the information was available on the internet about trans and and cross-dressing and the whole whole topic, you had to figure stuff out yourself. And I knew from like this high that I wanted to wear dresses because dresses were fun. <laughs> dresses are neat. <laughs> High heels are neat. <laughs> and so I, I, but I also knew that I could not mention this to any of my friends or my parents or anything. How do you think you knew that? It was just an inborn like feeling like I can't tell mom that I want to do this because mom was she had rigid ideas about what gender roles were and you know what you how you grew and what you did and you know if I didn't adhere to that it was going to be big trouble. She Ew, never never yeah, never so accepted. I I my father and I had a discussion about diversity at one point before he passed away and he seemed to be like a lot more open. I still didn't tell him that yeah I do this but but he was more accepting of people being different. Even parents who are receptive, loving and supportive 
can convey gay and transphobic points of view. After that incident, when I found out what gay meant in the third grade, I did tell my mom. Um, I was like, I think I'm, I'm I, I don't even think I said, I think I'm, I think I said, I'm gay. And she said, no, you're not. She's like, you don't have to worry about that right now. She said, no, you're not, which isn't great. Looking back, doesn't sound good that she said that, but um, it did mess me up a little where I was like, oh, okay. The lesson that I didn't take was like, what she was trying to say was you don't have to decide that now, but it's not a decision. And I don't think she realized that. And then, but it did mess me up a little for a little while where I was like, oh, maybe I'm, I can't, I can't tell anybody this until high school. This isn't to say that all parents get it wrong or even that those who do are wrong for not getting it, but it's incredibly helpful when those closest to us can have expansive enough conceptions of sexuality and gender that they meet disclosures from a space of connection and curiosity and not from a space of criticism. It's very cool to connect on it and to, you know, have their support and kind of question conversations together. It's a gift. It's a huge gift. Yeah. Helps them know I get them and they, they get me and it's very cool. It's never a challenge to receive them in their process. It helped that I had a friend, Steve, who also came out and it helped that um, I had friends who were not just supportive, but like excited about that idea you know they were like yeah great celebrate it i could not even i couldn't believe that i had forgotten that i was queer that i'd forgotten all these things about myself um so i started sort of coming out again realizing that i never really came out the first time especially when people would say things to me like i know laura i've always known but you knew me and that you met me and that i knew you know, the people who really knew me, that didn't have to come out. It can be risky to share, especially since even those who want to understand are often uninformed and unintentionally insensitive. There's a large number of people who aren't necessarily like trying to be transphobic or homophobic or anything like that. But they don't know the words because they just don't run with that crowd. They don't, they're not exposed to the right media that would like keep them up to date. And the words change like kind of frequently compared to a lot of language. And they'll say something and get like shot walking in the door, you know, like because it's not intentional. They're not trying to be a jerk, but the person on the other side is just so used to a world that's like, you know, oppressive and like actively trying to fight against them that they just assume that that's what's happening. And um, I think that happens a lot with sexuality. It's just like marginalized people are super used to sexism, transphobia, you know, all that kind of stuff. And um, there is this contingent of the world that's openly um, oppressive, but there's a lot of people who like, just don't know what words to use. The language has gotten so much more, um, it's more discussed now. So there's more language for it. And I feel like it's gotten even more individualized. So it's difficult to say a word and have people know what you mean. Um, I use the word queer because it's the least committal. It's the most fluid and it's not binary in the way that like bisexual would be. And it's not quite as, um, you know, there's something about pansexual that doesn't feel quite right for me either, but there is something about queerness that has always felt right. 
what I find interesting about using that word is that in circles of people that have only heard it as a slur against gay people, their reaction to it is it's sometimes hostile. Some people just prefer now use queer. Because yeah. I just say, I'm queer. I don't fit in any of your boxes. I'm queer. Does it matter? Yes and no. Language is important. Language is so important because it helps people feel less alone. Because before we had words for these things, so many people were living their life thinking that they were the only person who had felt these feelings. And to to have that, have those feelings be like boiled down into a word that you can use and describe for yourself and self-identify with or use to like educate others that like helps everybody feel less crazy, less alien, you know, like it's so important for community building and solidarity. At the same time, language can also be wielded as a weapon. Labels are useful to the degree that like, you know, we can find other people who share experiences, but then it becomes like this box. Like there's this incredibly frustrating conversation about bisexuality versus pansexuality that happens over and over again. And it's like, there's no reason for those groups to have any sort of enmity towards each other, but because of um, the way that labels also get used as a bludgeon, like sometimes that happens. Um, and just to clarify, if anybody's listening and doesn't know what I'm talking about, like there are folks who might say, um, I'm, I identify as pansexual because I will date people of all genders, um, not just um, cis people. And then someone who's bi on the other side might be like, I do too. Like it's not a lit, like bi isn't literal. Like the first use of the word bisexual is actually to describe the group that we would now use the term intersex. Like, words change <laughs> and evolve. And, like, we're not literal with most of these things. Like, lesbian, like, is, is such a funny word because it's like nobody's actually from that island. You know, that's not what we mean at all. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, it's like, yeah. why why are we literal in this one thing? But, like, um, but what we're really talking about in that bi versus fan thing is, like, the transphobia is a problem across all sexualizations. <laughs> there are people who won't date trans people who are straight or gay, etc. That's 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 a separate issue. So like find the label that makes sense for you for the purposes that you want to have a label. Right, right. <laughs> and understand that someone else's choice of label is not necessarily threatening mm-hmm. to your choice of not an indictment yeah. of your own. Hi, this is Anna Marie. Daralise and I thank you for tuning in to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. We'd love to hear your voices on topics of diversity. So join in on the conversation by calling 844-888-8148 and leave us a message or drop us a note through the website, www.demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com, and we'll do our best to answer your question during our Q&A episodes. The current sexual and gender orientation acronym is LGBTQIA+ which stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer or questioning, intersex, and either ally or asexual. Then there's the plus sign, a symbol that is meant to be inclusive of any non-cis, non-heterosexual, non-allied persons who might otherwise consider themselves part of the LGBTQIA community. For example, those who identify as pansexual or gender fluid. 
the landscape is shifting imperfectly, haltingly, with a lot of hatred, but also with a lot of hope. I wish it would happen faster. I wish we didn't have to explain ourselves all the time and come out. I wish we didn't have to make a choice one way or the other. I wish everybody were queer by default. And if you were straight today and gay tomorrow and both, you know, who, who cares? Who cares? <laughs> but it's not going to happen overnight. It's probably not ever going to happen. So um, the negotiations that we're doing all the time in the various spaces we occupy throughout the day. Since June 26, 2003, sexual activity between same-sex consenting adults has been legal nationwide. As of June 26, 2015, all 50 states license and recognize gay marriage. On June 6, 2019, 50 years after Stonewall, New York City Police Commissioner James P. O'Neill formally apologized on behalf of the entire New York City Police Department. There's no denying that even though there remains a lot of division and a lot of pain, there has also been a lot of progress. Today, on, you know, in the United States, there is so much more information available about transgender issues from cross-dressing to full-time get the gender surgery um, that was not available in, in like the 60s is when people started to form groups and start to correspond with each other. They, they put out like Xerox uh, mimeographed um, newsletters and stuff and various things. And it was illegal because uh, it was considered some kind of, you know, awful, you know, oh, we can't let that go through the mail. And, you know, now you've got the internet where you have so much information that you actually kind of have to be a little bit more um, scrutinize it a little bit more. Listen, look at it, but compare it. Say, this person says this on their YouTube video. Is that necessarily right for me? 50 years ago, relatively recently, as it pertains to human history, gay and trans people couldn't see themselves represented in culture or in media. There's at least more representation now than there used to be. Visibility matters. And what greater tool do we have for visibility than social media? The trans community is shifting. Um, back in 2017, there were more like elders at the helm of the project. And all of them were like living in a time where like their jobs were at stake. You know, their their families didn't know, things like that. So the conference was like no photography allowed. But there became so much tension because, like, young trans people post their transition on Instagram. You know, like, everybody's just so public with it now. And there's a lot less shame and, like, stigma, even though there, there still is a lot. But it's, like, very different. Social media offers a platform for disseminating information and ensuring representation. But it can also absolve us of responsibility. Many have used the internet as a means to bully and intimidate. Even those who are firmly on the side of diversity and inclusion have used social media as a smokescreen, creating the illusion that their actions are having a positive impact, when in reality, they're avoiding the sort of high-stake personal conversations that could actually lead to meaningful change in the hearts and minds of others. I think the best way to do is like, 
reach out to the people who are genuinely in your life and you genuinely care about. Like a thing um, that I think <laughs> I see a lot of like, for instance, this is just an example of like white queer people perform wokeness. They are, you know, and what they think they're doing is like, I'm going to state all of these things, you know, about how the whites are doing it wrong. And like, it's cool that they're being conscientious about that. But when, when like, we're calling upon white people to call in other white people, that means talk to your aunt. That means talk to your friend when he says something messed up, not shout to the internet, you know, like at a bunch of people who don't care and it's not gonna change their minds go where it's actually difficult for you. I need to speak to my friend when he says something sexist. I need to talk to my family when they say something racist, like where it's an actual risk for me because I have to still deal with these people. <laughs> Tomorrow they're still gonna be in my lives. And that's where the, the genuinely scary hard work is, but that's where you change people's minds. It's not shouting at the internet and like telling everybody how much more woke you are than everybody else. If I have an investment in this person, like, I might slow down and actually genuinely try to get get the information across, like why does this matter and how could it be done better? That's a really big piece is making sure that people understand what would be a better alternative. And sometimes even when we are making an impact, it's not necessarily constructive. Very often we're not offering alternatives. We're just telling each other what we're doing is wrong. And that's only so helpful. In terms of forging a path forward, I've asked a lot of questions and heard a lot of answers, but there's one I keep coming back to. We need to come to each other's defense when when it matters. Yeah. Yeah, I think I learned I think that's an important lesson for everybody to learn, especially now since everything's so divisive, to remember what we have in common because ultimately we're really all playing for the same team. So even if some of us are a little different, make sure we have each other's backs. Thank you for listening to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe. And if you'd like to join the conversation, visit demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com or call 844-888-8148 and leave us a message. Many thanks to interviewees Nadine Rosechild-Sullivan, Rob O'Neill, Oliver DeLuz, Vara Cooper, Timory Schmidt, Angela Gardner, and the anonymous gender nonconforming parent of a trans-identifying child, and to our episode sponsors Lavin and Associates and Next Level Trainings. Each episode of the Demystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by me. Dara Lise Lyons, with the invaluable assistance of Anna Marie Jones, reporter, producer, and co-collaborator, Paul Kondo, assistant producer and editor, Raina Epstein, creative assistant, Sunny Taylor, content editor and creative collaborator, Zach James, marketing manager, and Monica Lynn, graphic designer. The music you heard is The Flower by Michael Franti and Spearhead, featuring Victoria Canal. If you'd like to explore these topics outside of the podcast, pick up a copy of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity, wherever books are sold. And join us next week. In the meantime, let's practice empathy and work together to create a more inclusive world.